It's Friday the 13th, and we have the second biggest Mega Millions jackpot ever. Will it be a lucky day? It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and sitting in for Laura Johnston, who's off to Vermont to ski, Courtney Stolfi. It's Friday. I'm glad it's a work from home day. Who wants to drive in this mess? Got an interesting one to kick off the podcast today. Could Ohio become a national leader in the movement to let people make moonshine? Courtney, I love this story. It comes out of the blue and it's just fun to talk about. I love this one too. And and we could, like you said, become a national leaner here, which is hilarious. You know, uh, the state of Missouri legalized home liquor production back in 2014, but other than that, we could be a trailblazer. It doesn't appear that any other state has gotten that far. So where we are now is the Ohio Senate introduced a bill Thursday that's going to allow Ohioans to make up to 200 gallons of homemade moonshine or liquor without a permit as long as they don't sell it. Now, we just this is at the beginning stages. It just got introduced, right? So we have to see if, if it does go through and we do become that national leader. But, you know, this proposal's interesting. You can get, uh, you can make up to a hundred gallons of homemade liquor for every 21, if there's a 21 year old in your household. And if there's two people that are 21 year old or or older, you can make uh, a second batch. You can get up to 200 gallons. And like I said, there's no selling this liquor. You can give it away, family, friends, you can serve it on your own private property. But here we go. Let's see where this proposal goes. Well, the parallel for me is the home brewing phenomenon. I I made beer for years before I got diagnosed with celiac disease, and then I didn't make it for 15 years. And then you could again because there were grains you could make. But making beer in America was illegal from prohibition until 1978, which is ridiculous because to make beer, you soak some grains in hot water, you convert the starch to sugar, you throw some yeast in to eat the sugar, and that creates the alcohol. That's beer. It's like the most natural process. But for 50 years, we were not allowed to do it in this country. And then after 1978, lots of the states had to approve it too. I've always wondered why the prohibition on making liquor? There is an added element of danger. I don't know if people are aware, but if you distill things like that have alcohol in them, the vapor that comes out of that, if you don't chill it back to its liquid state, is explosive. And if it touches a flame, it blows up. So, so you know, you, you probably don't want to do that in close quarters because there is that danger. But it's a natural process. And I, I've always as I've made beer, I've thought, wouldn't it be fun to do this? But the problem is federal law absolutely prohibits it. So even if states allow it, do we get into a marijuana situation where there's a federal law that still says it's illegal? Yeah. And and, and that's a great point here. Federal law says absolutely no way, not, not ever. And in most states, as we learned, uh, adhere to that federal law. There have been efforts in West Virginia and, and a few other states, but that rub, I'm curious to see how that'll unfold. I um, I don't want to give anything away here, but the older Italian, you know, men in my family, I've watched them do homemade uh, Italian moonshine for years. It's a 
pretty interesting process it, to watch unfold. It's cool. I mean, it is it is a, a neat thing. And again, I do think it's a natural process why the federal government gets involved. I think it's because they want their money. There's always been the, the liquor tax and they worry. But but if you look back at what happened with beer, we didn't have a a kind of boutique beer industry in this country before homebrewing was legalized. Once homebrewing was legalized and lots of people started to experiment with it, craft breweries followed because people who were good at it thought they could make money at it. I wonder if you started to make home distilling legal, if it would do the same thing, if you would create an entirely new cottage industry of distillers uh, sharing and things. The other thing I should point out for, for research this morning, I went in and searched, you know, th- can you buy stills? Oh my God, you can buy stills <laughs> everywhere. So clearly there are people in this country that aren't waiting for the law to change before they start distilling their moonshine. Can I jump in? Yes. Who is, who is drinking a hundred gallons of moonshine a year? I mean, I don't think I drink a hundred gallons of water a year. <laughs> I think it's it's more they make it, they give it to friends. They it's it's. I mean, when you make beer, you're you're not drinking all that beer. Well, I how, I mean, I, it, it's what, a, how much would you make? It, it look making beer is a time consuming process. So, you know, I get to do it maybe one or two days a year. I don't get to do it as much as I would like. It's it takes you know pretty much half a day. The thing about it is the aromas you get from that are are just the best in the world. My kids have terrific memories of childhood. My daughter to this day swears I kept her home from school one day to help me make it. I don't remember doing that, but I don't think I would do that with distilling if I could do it. But it's felony. I mean, if you distill, it's it's like super serious. Well, I think it's uh, a holdover from the prohibition when, you know, people were making bathtub gin and it allowed the mafia to rise because they took over the illegal liquor industry and Cleveland is a huge epicenter of that. Look up the corn sugar wars and see how these Italian crime families fought over illegal, <laughs> making illegal booze. Look, I, I just think in a country that values freedom, the idea that you can't do this is silly. You can make wine, you can make beer, you can make cider, but distilling is illegal. It just seems like this is something I'm blown away, though, that Ohio, of all the states, we're not really a free thinking state. We're pretty backwards. So very interesting that this is on the books here. We'll have to follow how this goes along. It's today in Ohio. With some state house Republicans still working to make it harder to pass a constitutional amendment to legalize abortion, one of the groups working to do so has hired a firm that specializes in such campaigns. Lisa, which group? And who did it hire? Yeah, just to let people know that there are actually two groups in Ohio that are pushing for reproductive freedom, and they're kind of on separate tracks right now. But this one is the Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom. They hired a strategy group called Mission Control Incorporated to strategize for you know how they're going to do their campaign to enshrine abortion rights. This group, Mission Control, worked in Kentucky and Kansas to successfully defeat anti-abortion ballot issues, and their main tactic is using direct mail and they support democratic campaigns and candidates who are friendly to abortion rights. The principal of mission control, Letitia Martinez, says she's thrilled to help Ohioans for reproductive freedom build a robust campaign to permanently protect the uh, the reproductive rights for Ohio women. Uh, the group, Ohio the ORF, I'll call them, they've already got an initial language 
draft for the ballot. They're going to do test messaging on this and more research, and they hope to file the ballot language with the attorney general at the end of February. That would be the first step towards putting it on the ballot, but not necessarily this year's ballot. There are no details yet, but these will probably come to light. Um, Aaron Scott with ORF says this is a once in a decade opportunity, and they're going to take it very seriously. And their whole campaign is going to be rooted in research, polling, and data. It's like bringing in the big gun. This is this is serious weight into the campaign. Although I don't understand why they're saying it might not be this year. They might have this year as their only window. The attempts to make it harder to pass amendments are going to continue. And this may be the last year where it's just the majority rules. You would think they would be able to hasten this to get that done. And maybe having a big gun like this working with you will help that happen. Well, the other group, the Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights, which is about 1,400 doctors and healthcare providers, they have a separate campaign called Protect Ohio Choice, and they are aiming for this November ballot. I'm a little worried, though, that we've got two groups, you know, with the same purpose kind of working at odds. I hope they can come together. Yeah, it, it, it would make sense. It's kind of surprising they haven't done that yet, but interesting, big development it's today in Ohio. You know, Layla, I get lots of uh, emails and texts from people, and some of them are really mean and nasty, and you just don't react to those, and you move on with your day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wonder, what is going on in Beechwood? Why is the city of Beechwood working so hard to unmask some anonymous critic? Yeah, I don't know. They're back in the news here. This this time, it's because their police chief, Catherine McLaughlin, is so frustrated by an anonymous person who keeps posting critical things about her on social media that she is forcing the city to file this defamation suit on her behalf. And problem is, they don't know who this person is. So the suit names John Doe as the defendant with the hope that through discovery, they'll be able to unmask the true identity of this online perpetrator. And we're talking about someone who's used a series of presumably fake accounts to leave comments on the Beechwood Police Department's Facebook page and to send an email back in September to members of city council accusing the chief of having improper relationships with subordinates and mistreating officers and and some other things like that. Council in November approved spending $25,000 to hire Mink Law to pursue this case on McLaughlin's behalf. This is a firm that specializes in online defamation and harassment. Reporter Corey Schaefer tells us that counsel decided to pick up the tab on this after receiving complaints from an employee that the comments online were creating a hostile work environment. That employee threatened to sue the city if they didn't take action. So was that employee McLaughlin herself? The city isn't really, they're not saying. So yeah, they but suspect, yeah. I, I don't, usually the hostile work environment is something that you have to argue your employer created. I and mean, there's lots of hostility out there in all <laughs> right. sorts of professions, but that you don't get to claim hostile work environment. That seems bogus to me. It doesn't seem like the taxpayers should be footing the bill. It absolutely doesn't. And they're, they're, it feels like they're doing some gymnastics to, to, to create, you know, to manufacture a justification for why the taxpayers are paying it. They suspect that the person behind these anonymous posts is either a member of the police department or someone posing as one. And, 
you know, the city council president issued a statement that says that if 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 one city worker is doing something that's impacting a coworker's ability to complete their work, it's basically the city's duty to ferret that out and stop it. But if it turns out that the author of these posts doesn't work for the police department, then they say they'll, you know, they'll stop the litigation. But you know, <laughs> yeah. this is a highly controversial move by the city. Corey spoke to some First Amendment experts who said none of the, the comments online appear to be defamatory and that citizens have the right to criticize the government and to remain anonymous while they're doing that, even if the city uncovers the poster's identity and it turns out not to be a city employee, that person's cover is blown. And so, you know, it's just, it just this feels like it's- another... You know, Beachwood not doing the right thing here with taxpayer dollars. Right. It's it's completely wrong. And the other thing, anybody that's ever been in this kind of situation knows the way you deal with it is to just completely ignore it. When you react to it, you're giving the complainer exactly what they want. Right. You know, we've had some local media people who love to rip into us, but by ignoring them, they get nothing. They get no joy. They get no, nobody's talking about what they're doing. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they just look the other way and wait for this to, to die down? It is legal in America to complain about your police department. Right. And and in this case, you know, McLaughlin is a public official. To prove defamation, she would have to show that the commenter not only knew that the claims were untrue, but that the person made the claims with malice and meant to inflict harm on her. And that's that's a really high bar to clear. It's just I don't know why judgment. The residents of Beachwood continue to tolerate the government there. It's been it's been bad for as long as we've been paying attention. You know what? Maybe maybe Armin Budish, now that he's out of office, he'll run for mayor there and bring some sense of order to Beachwood. Right. <laughs> I was very interested in the part of Corey's story where he talked about how this is not the first time that they've done something like this. Apparently back in 2017, the chief at that time sent a memo to the city's law director and said he thought he was being followed. And they they put tons of resources into this all-out investigation to find out who this person was. And, and also they were, you know, he insinuated that they were also posting things online, similar to what McLaughlin is saying. And they were able to find out that one of them was just a resident who frequents meetings and was writing stuff online anonymously. But they put two detectives on that case. <laughs> it's just a bad culture. There's something that stinks in that city hall. They need the clean house. It's today in Ohio. How high up on the national rankings has Northeast Ohio moved when it comes to bed bug infestations? Courtney, we've been high on these rankings for a long time, although we're higher now. And I just don't get it. What is it about Northeast Ohio that is makes us such a center of horrible bugs? Yeah, this is a bummer. We we keep moving up the rankings, it appears. We've we found out, you know, this year we we rank number fourth in the nation for bed bug infestations. And that ranking comes from the pest control company, Orkin, and it's based on their own data upon areas where the company has performed the most residential and commercial treatments. That ran, that period ran from December 21 to the end of November 22. And while we don't have specific numbers, you got to think Orkin knows where it's delivering services, right? So if we're, we're number four now, and that's, that's up from, Number six in 2021, um, we were at, at number eight a year ago, but but leading up to that, we were lower in the rankings. Like in 2018, we were at, at 14th. And, you know, when we when we look at who's outpacing us now, it's 
cities far larger than us. You know, Chicago is sitting at the number one spot. And then that was followed by New York City and Philadelphia. So I'm really curious the what what's causing this as well. Yeah, I just don't. What What is it about the Midwest that seems to make us a hotbed for it? And I knew somebody that that had experience with getting rid of them, and it's an awful process. It's awful, process. yeah. I had a friend in Texas that they basically had to move everything out, wash everything. And his, he figured it came from an upholstered couch that he bought at a thrift store is where they came from. Well, the one I heard knew about, they had to bring in these colossal heaters and raise the temperature in the place to some ungodly temperature and keep it that way for an extended period of time. Just awful. And so it's, it's, they're good tips in the story about how to avoid it and what you should do when you travel. Uh, I have to admit, I have not always followed those tips. It's today in Ohio. How exactly is Akron spending the $1.5 million it has dedicated to violence prevention? And can the Akron Zoo really help in that effort? Layla, the Akron Zoo popping up kind of threw me. I know, it threw me too. In total, the city is spending $7.5 million on anti-violence efforts. And for this round, Mayor Dan Horgan says that they're giving these anti-violence grants to groups that can offer a holistic approach to quelling violence and, and giving young people a path to a brighter future. And this the, the grant amounts range from 15000 to more than $130,000. So within the set receiving money from this overall pot of $1.5 are some groups that you'd expect to see, you know, boys and girls clubs, for example. But then you have recipients that you wouldn't really associate with anti-violence efforts. And the Akron Zoo is one of them. They'll be receiving $60,000 to create a youth entrepreneurship program that will pay for up to 20 Akron students to create a local composting program. So, I mean, some of the grants will fund faith-based initiatives, uh, you know, and uh, uh, other grants will fund secular programs like one from Kent State that aims to help up to 30 foster youth with career readiness and life skills. And uh, Akron plans to distribute another round of grants in, in spring, which will focus on reentry services for formerly incarcerated people and those with a history of violence. But yeah, the Akron Zoo is is hoping that composting is the answer to street but, violence. I mean, it feels like the biggest stretch. I, I like the youth composting idea. I'm not surprised that the city is investing in it, but I'm I am surprised it's coming out of this funding stream for anti-violence because chances are the kids who raise their hands to learn composting and set up a community composting initiative are are not the kids who are carrying guns on the streets of Akron. Yeah, that that's what struck me about all of this is this is all aimed at diverting limited numbers of children into some kind of pursuit, but it really doesn't attack the root causes of the violence. It doesn't right. remove guns from the street. It doesn't exactly. start to work with kids to understand that if you have a gun in your hand, it's very, very dangerous. And the taking of lives, all that none of it is aimed at that. And I, you know, we, we talked some years ago about the violence interrupters and things like that, that were specifically targeting mm -hmm. reducing violence and none of these strategies are that aren't they kind of for That's the right. root cause of violence which is unattended latchkey kids or kids running the streets i mean so maybe that's what their aim is here i think the yeah. boys and girls clubs are are really the i mean t t for, toward that mission of giving children a play a safe place to do things that are constructive and 
uh, that that's what the boys and girls clubs are for. But I'm not sure if the composting program, you know, if it, you know what, I don't know. I, There's, you know, for what it's worth, I like it. I mean, I think we do need to start pushing the definition of violence prevention. It is social. It is mm-hmm. community-based. Mm-hmm. We know it's economic. And, and by just focusing on, I don't know, the traditional routes, I like that we're pushing those boundaries now. Okay. It's Today in Ohio. We have another investment in mental health in Northeast Ohio. Last fall, it was Metro Health opening a big facility in Cleveland Heights. Now we have one in Akron. Lisa, we pay a lot of lip service to mental health the past few years, but these are some concrete steps to address it. Yeah, this is really great. Uh, Summa Health is going to have a ribbon cutting tomorrow on their brand new $84 million Juvie Family Behavioral Health Pavilion. It's a seven-story building on their main campus in Akron. It has 64 beds. And the the thing that they like about it is that it's close to medical care. And so they're offering healing and safety are their foremost missions with this new pavilion. But uh, being near medical care gives them a kind of an integrated whole person look at at mental health. The uh, facility is named for Richard Juvie, who is the chair of AmeriChem in Cuyahoga Falls, and his wife, Sharon. They gave $10 million to establish this pavilion. Lots of amenities, including partial hospitalization program with treatment on site up to eight hours a day without having to admit them to the hospital, a trauma center with virtual reality treatment, private patient rooms where the old facility, they were semi-private. They say that private patient rooms are better for safety and security, outpatient psychiatry and psychology office, and a specialized geriatric treatment unit. So this replaces the 1920s era Summa St. Thomas Hospital, which will close. Um, Like I said, the ribbon cutting and open house is tomorrow from 11 to 3. Everybody's welcome. They're going to have tours, food, raffle, and so on and so forth. What's nice to see is the old style mental health facilities closing down because they were they're pretty bad. They're right out of one flew over the cuckoo's mm-hmm. nest and, and to, to have modernism. And earlier this week, Mike DeWine in his second inaugural address also went deep on talking about what his plans are for mental health. We saw a lot of manifestations of mental health issues during the pandemic. And I, I just am glad to see we're actually doing real things about it to try and make it. And we're moving away from that institutionalization model, which is so important. I mean, we used to just warehouse people like that and, you know, they were left out of society and forgotten. And this is a way of, you know, treating them while still keeping them part of their world, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's a good sign. It's today in Ohio. It's been rumored for a year or two, but now it's official. When is Ron Richard retiring as president and CEO of the Cleveland Foundation? Courtney. Yes, Richard is looking to retire in the second half of this year. We don't have a specific date yet, but it could be as early as July 31st. And Richard has said he'll hang around as long as he's needed to really help make the the transition successful. And Richard's been there a long time. He's been there since 2003. He's about to turn 67. And 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 this turnover is part of that trend we've been talking about, what, for a couple years now. A lot of Cleveland leaders have been stepping down and, and new folks are coming in. And and the Cleveland Foundation's a notable one for this here. You know, it, it, it was, you know, founded 100, over 100 years ago. It calls itself the nation's oldest community foundation. And 
it, it has assets of over $3 billion and it distributes about $120 million in grants annually. So it plays a really important role in, in you know, the philanthropic part of this community, obviously. And, and you know, our reporter, Steve Litt, kind of went back to look at Richard's legacy and, and, and how he's kind of shepherded the foundation over the years. And, and Litt tells us that under his tenure, the foundation's really earned a national reputation for being more... Uh, delivering a more proactive kind of civic activism. And one example of that is is its choice to move its new headquarters into Huff. Yeah, I it'll be interesting to see who replaces him. That's a very, very big job. It's one of the most important positions in Cleveland outside of government. And with the money that they hand out every year, can very much steer the conversation in the city did they say much about what they're doing to look for his replacement? Yeah. So we heard from the chair of the board over there, Constance Hill Johnson, and she acknowledged this is a big deal, a big turning point. She said the board's already hired a consultant to help, you know, assist with the transition and figure out the skills and qualities it's going to want in its new director. Once that work's done, the search is really going to kick off. But, you know, Hill Johnson said there's no firm timeline here. They want to make sure they take the time that's needed and and get the right person in place. She didn't rule out bringing in someone internally as long as they kind of fulfill those values that the board eventually defines as their guiding light in the search process. Okay, it's today in Ohio. What has happened to all the Cleveland to Arizona nonstop flights that were available as late as last year? Layla? Yeah, Susan Glazer says that a year ago there were four airlines that flew nonstop to Arizona. Today, there are only two, Frontier and Southwest, after United and, Air, and American bailed on offering that route. And, and total seat capacity on those remaining flights has dropped by more than half in the past year. So United and American say that the demand is just not there. United highlighted that they'll still offer nonstop service to a number of hot destinations like all seven of their hubs, plus Cancun and Nassau, Fort Lauderdale, Fort Myers, and and Orlando. So Frontier now has the majority of Phoenix-bound flights. They currently fly once per day to Phoenix from Cleveland. They depart at 8.45 in the morning. Southwest offers service to Phoenix twice per week on Saturdays and Sundays. The industry experts are just saying that this is really a sign of the ongoing struggles that airlines face with equipment and employee shortages. They're constantly evaluating where they can get the most, where they can make the most money and, and how to use their limited resources. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Speaking of Arizona on a day when it's snowing, travel writer Susan Glazer also says that Major League Baseball has some changes in store for people who visit spring training in the first season in a while that we're having a full spring training season. Lisa, what does she tell us? Yeah, you know, of course, spring training has been disrupted. Uh, you know, with the last normal spring training we had was in 2019, and then the pandemic did its work, and then there was a player lockout last year. So this combined to drastically reduce attendance uh, in Cactus League games in in uh, Arizona, and uh, baseball and tourism folks though were hoping that this year will be a normal season. The, the pandemic is 
is not behind us, but it's in the background. And Bridget Binsbacher, who's the executive director of the Cactus League, which is 15 Major League Baseball teams that play in Arizona, she says, this is a big deal. And she says the Guardians in particular may see a bump because they had such a good season last year. And usually that creates energy for spring training. So this year, spring training begins February 26th and goes through March 21st. There are 17 games at Goodyear Ballpark in Goodyear, Arizona, which is 20 miles west of downtown Phoenix. And there are 10 other ballparks within an hour's drive of Phoenix. So if you go to spring training, and I did that one year in Florida for the Astros, and we went to Dunedin to see another game. Tickets are on sale now, $12 for general admission to sit in the grassy berm, $35 for club and box seats. But Susan Glauser says hotels in the area are not cheap and they are booking up fast in Goodyear and the surrounding uh, suburbs. Although at the same time, there's fewer flights to get out there, so it's more limited. You would have thought the airlines would at least keep it going through spring training or put in a few extra flights for Clevelanders to go out there. I know it's popular, and I I believe there's going to be a pent-up demand because, Mm -hmm. as you said, you haven't really been able to do this since 2019. And if you've never done spring training, it's it's really a lot of fun. Like I said, I did it uh, for the Houston Astros back in, I think, 2003, and we went to Kissimmee, Florida, and like, you know, know, like, you know, they also have other, you know, that's the Grapefruit League in Florida and there were other ballparks and we drove to Tampa to Dunedin to see them play there. And you get to, you have more access to the players. If you're looking for autographs, spring training is really the place to get them. Yeah, I lived in Florida, I think, when that Kissimmee facility opened. So it was brand new, and it really was a beautiful way to watch a ball game. It's it's so different than going to the in-season games. It's a it's a good atmosphere. It's great to take kids to. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for a week of news. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back on Tuesday. We will not be here on the holiday. <laughs> <laughs>